John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, everyone. This is John Roca. Or should I say, the outlaw John Roca, in honor of the film, Steve Morris and I are covering this week, Silverado. From 1985, this film directed by Lawrence Kasdan and written by Lawrence Kasdan and his brother Mark Kasdan is a rip-roaring, fun adventure western that has a lot more going for it underneath than most of the westerns enthusiasts give it credit for. Sometimes this one gets criminally overlooked in the history of westerns and Steve and I are here to vouch for it or as the kids say, stand for it and give it some love and hopefully bring it back up in the estimation of your eyes if you haven't seen this one in a while or if you've thought about giving it a shot but haven't watched it yet. Uh, It stars a who's who of incredible actors including Kevin Kline, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner, Danny Glover. Of course you get the late great Brian Dennehy as the evil Cobb and he is the reason we're doing this in honor of the passing of Brian Dennehy. You get John Cleese in this one as well, Rosanna Arquette. You get James Gammon for those of you who are fans of Major League, Linda Hunt, Jeff Goldblum, Joe Seneca, Lynn Whitfield, Jeff Fahey, and Amanda Wiss, who some of you may know from A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, And if you wanted to buy this Western, you can go to www.cine-files.net to purchase it on Amazon. And if you're a patron uh, of our Cinephiles Patreon, you could be listening to Steve and I discussing right now what makes an instant classic, which was a really great conversation between Steve and I. So that's what makes an instant classic right now on Patreon Shorts and part one of Silverado this Friday on the Cinephiles. What's going on here? You got me. This is a crazy town, Emmett. I, I think we ought to just get out of here. I mean, all I did was kiss a girl. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host uh, here in Los Angeles, California, and excited to be diving into something that is called a Western, as I am the outlaw. Uh, So I couldn't be more excited for us to be jumping into one of my favorite 80s movies, and one that doesn't get talked about a lot when people talk about the greatest Westerns 
ever. I absolutely love this movie, and it is one of my... You know, it's we, we, we kind of asked this question before. Yeah. This is one of my comfort films. This is a movie that I could put in at any time right. and watch it, and it makes me happy. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and the movie we're talking about today, of course, is Silverado. Oh. And actually, there are two reasons we're doing this today. The first, of course, is a very sad re- reason, which we lost the bad guy, the big bad guy of this film, the great Brian Dennehy, passed yeah. away a few weeks ago. Such a shame. It's such a shame. And the other reason is that this is a Patreon pick. Hans Eskelson picked it. (laughs) And I think he's a big supporter of the top 10 show as well. That he is. Yeah. It's always good to see his name pop up here on any of the podcasts I do. So thanks so much for picking this one, Hans. And rather than us saying why we picked uh, Silverado, Hans, we'd love to hear what was your reason for picking this 1985 Western classic? Hello, my name is Hans Eskelson from Stanwood, Washington. Stephen John, thank you for this honor to introduce Silverado. Growing up in a large family of nine, movies is how my family could all come together. Silverado became a family favorite because it reflected our values of helping others, to overcome adversity, our love of witty one-liners, and the reflection of brotherhood with that great on-screen chemistry. Silverado is not just another Western, but a story of how we can come together despite our background. It's about doing good for those in need. So without further ado, where's the dog? Thank you very much, Hans. Thank you. Pretty cool words. Pretty cool words. And uh, since uh, we lost Brian Dennehy, I just wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about him. He was born in 1938 in Connecticut, moved to Long Island. The guy went to Columbia on a football scholarship, (laughs) which is not surprising because Brian Dennehy is a big dude. He's Big Bad John. Yeah. And he worked totally, and he worked all sorts of blue collar jobs, taxi bartender. Didn't really fall right into acting right away. Was a, briefly a stockbroker for Merrill Lynch, which he absolutely hated. I'm sure. Uh, and then slowly started acting, and he just slowly started acting. And he had, you know, in the '70s on things like Kojak and Lou Grant, mm. Dallas Dynasty, and Miami Vice in the '80s. Um, he was in Semi Tough. He was in foul play, all these kind of little parts. And it wasn't until the mid eighties with cocoon and Silverado, which are both in 85 that he suddenly breaks out. Yeah. And I think that's when I first, I mean, I'm sure I might've seen him on Miami vice. I'm sure I might've seen him whatever. And it just never stuck with me fully until cocoon and Silverado, which is such an interesting one, two punch from an actor showing the variety of his range. Cause he's very actually tender in uh, cocoon, very caring guy in cocoon, but in Silverado, he's such a, a you know a villain, and such a, a delicious villain to watch. And so, in on one side, he's using his size as a sort of papa figure in Cocoon, and another side, he's using his size as an intimidation factor in Silverado. So, just fantastic work from a guy who went on to do so many great uh, uh, things: comedy, drama, uh, horror, what have you. Uh, I remember him in FX, that film with him and Brian Brown, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, and he also became a big theater guy, had his Broadway debut in 1995. He was known as one of the great interpreters of Eugene O'Neill, wow. was in The Iceman Cometh, was in uh, Moon for the Misbegotten, won the Tony Award, I think, for Iceman, won another Tony Award for Death of a Salesman, mm-hmm. which I saw him in. Oh, really? You know, okay. That's, yeah, which where he is um shattering mm-hmm. as Willie Loman. Powerful and scary and confused and in pain and 
Yeah, I mean, it was a remarkable play. Um, and one of the things people, he did a lot of Beckett, he did a lot of Arthur Miller, he did a lot of Shakespeare on uh, in theater. And one of the things he said in describing his success with those playwrights is he said, when you walk with giants, you get used to taking bigger steps. Oh, wow. Which I That's thought a, was great a great line. Quote. You know, I've always felt he was the... Um the next in the line of the Lee J. Cobb kind of actors. Totally. Right? What was Whereas Lee J. Cobb always seemed to be fighting against this uh, kind of insecurity, which is why he had all this bravado and, and uh, uh, I don't know, just loud noises. Uh, with Dennehy, there was a certain level of confidence in what he was yes. doing that kind of elevated what Lee J. Cobb had set aside, had said, I put it forth already and took it to the next level. Uh, and I, I thought that was, at times, it was used effectively in films. Very chilling. And I think the Cocoon and Silverado performances mm. are so, such perfect examples of how he uses that confidence differently. Yeah. Because in Cocoon, he's playing the alien that should be scary, but ends up being yeah, very nice. Super gentle. Like yeah. he's so powerful and confident that he doesn't have to be scary. And in Silverado, it's like the opposite is that he's so powerful and confident and uh, smiling mm. and happy that he's actually terrifying. Yes. You know? Um, hey, do you remember how you first came to Silverado? Uh, yeah. I'm, it was, uh, I think it was when they had shown it in the uh, on TV, like the first time they'd shown it on TV. I had not watched it for whatever reason. I think because in my mind, it starred all those actors from the big chill. So I thought it was an older adult movie and I just wasn't in the mood to see that. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I think later when they f- showed it on television, maybe on NBC or whatever, as a movie of the week, that's when I watched it the first time and just fell in love with it completely. The score, the acting, the actors, I'm sorry, the director, rather Kasdan, all of it just kind of got inside of me and, and made me excited. And the truth is, I didn't see Big Chill until two years ago uh, in my life. And so, like, I just resisted that film for so long uh, for whatever reason. But this one, because it was a Western and I was kind of growing in my estimation of Westerns at that time, this was one of those ones I had to watch. Wow. What did you think of Big Chill a couple of years ago? Uh, I thought it was, you know, for what it was, it's a it's a dated film. But I also think I'm at that age where they were or even a little bit older. We're uh, older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they in their were. 30s. That's true. Fair. Uh, although they look like they were acting like they were in their 40s. Uh, but yeah, watching them uh, in that film, I thought it was still fun to revisit these like all these great actors from the 80s. Not all of them made that transition to the 90s or the 2000s. And a lot of them are still working. And Lord knows Jeff Goldblum is still doing his thing. Glenn Close still doing her thing, you know. But uh, it, it's a, it was fun to revisit or to see that film for the first time and kind of revisit that time of the 80s with those actors. It's like Terms of Endearment. I saw Terms of Endearment again, I don't know, about like a year ago on TCM. And it was kind of nice to remember why I love this movie uh, and that right. it still holds up, which I really right. enjoy too. It's funny. So Big Chill, I think it's one of my sister's favorite movies. Mm. I had seen it a lot. I think I saw it in the theater. And I think, you see, I'm not, you know, normally we talk about, you and I both have pretty good memories of mm. when we first saw movies. I can't remember for sure if I saw Silverado in the theater. I oh. think I did. Okay. And I think we went because my dad was a huge Western guy. Mm. And there weren't that many Westerns. You know, the, the, the death of the Western is something that's happened over and over and over <laughs> yeah. again in film history. Um, so I think I saw it in the theater. And this was definitely one that was in the VHS rental rotation mm-hmm. that I just rented over and over again. And, of course, I had, the, I had it on VHS. I had it on DVD. I had it on Blu-ray. Right. You know, it's one I've watched a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to talk about this name that's come up 
multiple, at least three times in the cinephiles, and that is Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah. He came up because he was brought on to write Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that led him to write the, you know, what I think most people agree is the greatest Star Wars film ever made, Empire Strikes Back, um, and wrote some of Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And he is a really interesting guy. So I just wanted to take a minute to talk about him. He mm-hmm. comes a uh, Jewish upbringing, grew up in Florida, didn't have a lot of money. Both of his parents, he describes as thwart- thwarted writers. Hmm. His mom studied with Sinclair Lewis wow. at university. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he he said, looking back on it now, I wonder if I owe her everything, whether by nature or nurture, that I became a writer. Hmm. Um, uh, and his favorite, here is three of his favorite films, and it makes so much sense. The Two Sturges movie, The Great Escape and Magnificent Seven. Right. And you look at Silverado, you look at Empire Strikes Back, you look at, yeah. you know, Raiders, is that that? adventurous spirit is there mm-hmm. and Lawrence of Arabia <clears throat> you know th- those are his favorite films his older brother is who introduced him to westerns and they watched them obsessively and he knew as soon as he got into movies that he someday wanted to make a western mm. after the ones we just talked about he wrote Continental Divide well actually before he wrote Continental Divide for Steven Spielberg which ended up being that John Belushi movie yeah. which I haven't seen in 30 years. Yeah. I don't think it's worth a revisit. <laughs> I didn't like it back then of, and I don't like it now. It's kind of what I figured. Yeah. Um, but that got him the job on Raiders, which led to empire. And then he had his directorial debut, which is body heat, which mm-hmm. is another movie I haven't seen in forever. Um, and then the big chill, which we talked about. And then Silverado after which there's the accidental tourist, which is a, you know, Academy award winning film. I like that film. I still like that film. William Hurt and Gina Davis. Forever. Oh yeah. It's so yeah. good. I think Elizabeth Perkins plays, his wife in the movie who he leaves for eventually for Gina Davis. But yes, damn good movie. Oh no, he Kathleen Turner. Great. It's Kathleen Turner. I'm sorry. Go Kath- ahead. Sorry. Kath- uh, no, it's Gina. No, it's Gina Davis. I think. Well, Gina Davis is the girl he leaves Kathleen Turner for. Oh, Kathleen Turner Kathleen. is his wife. Yeah. William Hurt's wife in the movie. Yeah. 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 Um, Grand Canyon, which is a movie I remember liking a lot. Yeah. And that's ensemble with Danny Glover and Steve Martin yep. and a whole bunch of other actors. Yeah. And of course, uh, Wyatt Earp, which is a mixed movie. As far as <laughs> yeah, I'm concerned. it is. I agree. I think I really have always thought like if you could take to what's great about Tombstone and throw out the things that are terrible about Tombstone. Yes. And take what's really good about Wyatt Earp and then you combine them together. Yeah. That is a good movie. I agree. I thoroughly agree. That's why I will, ne- I will never, st- uh, never defend Tombstone. Uh, it is a Western. People claim I'd have said it's not a Western. It is a Western. It's just not a good Western. Uh, but yes, that's if you combine the two, I thoroughly agree with you. Like those like those Hulk films. If you combine the first two Hulk films into mm. one film, you'd have a really damn good film. Yeah, there's because there's good parts of both. Yep. Um, and then, of course, he comes back and is the writer on Force Awakens. Right. Um, and, which I think is the strongest of the new trilogy. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um a little bit of pre-production is written by him and his brother. Um, and here's basically, this is all I want to say about pre-production, is that they wanted to, this is a love letter to the old Westerns. Mm-hmm. It's not a love letter to the old West. It is about movies. In yeah. the same way that Quentin Tarantino movies are kind of movies about movies. And that's what this is. And there are so much, they basically went, we want to put in every Western trope or cliche or thing and here's the list i made and there's really more than that um there's the ambush 
the cavalry, saloons, the country store, the sheriff. There's a hanging. There's gunfights. There's posses. There's escapes. There's wagon trains. There's a bad guy's hideout. There's the family heading west. There's the saloon keeper, the gambler. There's ranchers versus farmers. There's outlaws, hired guns, trick riding, stampedes, the saloon girls, the jailbreak, the horse chase, lassos, gunfights, you know, in the classic gunfight on the street of the town. Mm -hmm. There's the sheriff. I mean, this is like every single thing that you want to have in a Western, they managed to pack into one film. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why it's so long. It's it's a long Western. Yeah. Uh, would you like to get into this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's settle up. Uh, we start off, it's very quiet. And I think this opening is brilliant, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is we're just in this shack. We don't know what's going on. The camera pans around, along this room. We see a bucket and a saddle and boots and a gun and a holster. And we come up on a sleeping man, which is Scott Glenn. Um, and suddenly, out of nowhere, the door is kicked open, and Scott Glenn's character, who's Emmett, who was asleep the moment before, kills that guy right away. It's very reminiscent of True Grit, when you find uh, Cogburn asleep in the... Uh, so maybe there's a little homage to that as well, you know, in the back of a, of a place in a shack. Absolutely. I, I'm sure that's uh, conscious. Hmm. But he's not out of the woods yet because there's more gunshots at him. Um, and he sees a guy walking on the, through the slats of the building on the outside. And just as he's aiming at that, a, a shotgun shot comes down down from the, the roof. And now he's got to deal with this guy. Yeah. And, and, and he goes, okay, I still got to get this guy who's outside. So he tracks him through the wall, kills him. More shotguns down from the roof. He looks over, sees his rifle on his bed. This is great, great action sequence storytelling, mm -hmm. the way the shots are put together. And he's going, how am I going to get to the rifle? He throws his gun at the stove, which causes the guy on the roof to fire over there. He hits the rifle, which flies through the air and makes the great <laughs> foo, foo sound. Catches it, kills the guy who falls through the roof. I mean, that's just an amazing action opening. And then you get what I think is a classic John Ford right out of the searcher shot, which we're in the dark room yeah. and he walks toward the lighted door mm -hmm. and we come out and there is the great expanse of the old West. Yep. And we hear the theme. So great. I mean, you know, if you're going to do a Western uh, in the eighties, uh, in the age of excess, you got to kind of uh, come up, uh, especially in the age of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the age of Star Wars, you got to come with some kind of event opening. And this is certainly an event opening, a very thrilling opening that introduces your main protagonist because there are a number of protagonists in the movie, but he's your main protagonist and show showcase his skills. Uh, so already you buy this guy as a, as a, a deadly foe, uh, and you get, and you get the idea this is not a guy to be messed with. Um, and, uh, a guy that is being chased down or persecuted or attacked. So immediately he's like the underdog in the situation. So we immediately gravitate to him and follow his story. So great, a great intro for a character. Well, and I think, um, We've come out of the 60s and the 70s, which was the rise of the anti-hero right, Western. Right. It's the Clint Eastwood, it's the man yeah. with no name, it's all that stuff. And this very quickly goes, we're not going to be that. Right. We're doing something really, really different. Mm -hmm. um, this is the old school sort of rollicking uh, adventure Western. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And, and one quick thing about how they shot this. This was almost entirely shot on a studio where they built this shack in its entirety mm-hmm. on a stage. Mm-hmm. And all the interiors are shot on a stage until we get to the final shot where they took the entire set with every single prop. They took it down. They put it in a <laughs> truck. They drove it to New Mexico. They rebuilt the set on this mountaintop. Yeah. And then he comes out of it into this world. Wow. Wow. Um, one quick thing is... I love the score. Mm -hmm. The score is great. This is Bruce Broughton, and it is just a rousing, rollicking, fun story. Absolutely. It's very reminiscent, as you mentioned earlier, of uh, Magnificent Seven. It has that vibe to it, that kind of adventurous, fun vibe to it, yeah. And we go into the credits where he's riding through the West. And this is, you know, every time I see these credits, I'm like, man, this is a good cast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the names just go on and on with stellar, stellar people in all these parts. Yeah, there's there's almost no small actors in these parts. Uh, Totally agreed. And one other thing about this, um, I think what I would like to point out, people... You know, we've always talked about on the show that that people tend to elevate one style of movie and kind of degrade another style of movie as this one's harder and this one's easier. This is a brilliantly crafted film. Mm -hmm. It is not a heavy film. It doesn't particularly have serious. I mean, it's got a little drama to it, but the craftsmanship, this is where you can really examine it. Yeah. And one of the things about it is each of these characters we're going to introduce, it gets introduced with some mystery. Mm-hmm. Mystery is key to advancing stories. We don't know who Scott Glenn is. Right. We don't know who these people were that attacked him. We see that there's a Pinto horse that has a particular brand. Right. We don't know what that means. And then we see this guy ride off in during the credit sequence, totally all alone, which is, I think, one of the key themes of Western films is the... You're on your own. Yeah. This guy's yeah. got nobody to help him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and he rides. This is all shot in New Mexico, by the way. And he rides through some beautiful, beautiful uh, landscape until he comes into this desert area. And there is this dude <laughs> lying in the middle of the desert in his union suit. And that's Kevin Klein. Yeah. The, I mean, people will forget. Uh, and for you young kids, you all forget. Uh, Kevin Klein was like. One of the kings of the 80s. He wasn't an overt king like Tom Cruise or mm. Schwarzenegger or Stallone. But for those of us who had more, for, more I would say, refined taste in films, uh, Kevin Klein was someone you looked forward to seeing in any movie because he brought this air of warmth and charm that was so effortless and also made you feel like you could be this guy's friend, but it's totally cool if he doesn't want to be your friend. It's like he's just so nice. <laughs> he just radiates this niceness to him and this warmth to him. And you get it in like, uh, you know, uh, Fish Call Wanda. And you get it in this film and a number of Dave. films. Dave. Right, right. Eventually, yeah, in the ni- early 90s, Dave. And and uh, even, um, what was the other one? Even that weird January man is, a, is mm. decent because of him, you know. And so uh, there's a lot of films that he does through the 80s. But this is a great, and, and that bushy beard. And, and it's, it's also, once again, it's very reminiscent of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because when you find mm. Clint Eastwood, he has all that stuff on his mouth. He's been laying in the in the desert for so long. So again, these are kind of like subtle homages, uh, but they totally. I mean, because it's not believable, Steve, that a dude would be just lying in the middle of the desert, you know, calmly waiting his death. It's just well, very, this movie isn't you know? isn't. But the, you know what else this is? It's also Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, it's very the guy good point. Who's trapped in the desert. Who who T Lawrence goes back to save. Yeah. 
You know, the, the, this movie's just filled with sort of these homages. And I also just want to take a moment to like the casting of Kevin Klein mm-hmm. as a gunslinging badass. It's just great, yeah. great casting. It's so you know? good. Yeah. Um, because he's, as you said, he's so warm and it's such a gentle way of doing everything. Yeah. And it's great contrast with Scott Glenn, whose whole face is just, yeah, this is a tough guy. He's been weathered you know? since birth, I believe. And Scott Glenn gets off his horse and yeah. cautiously goes over, gives the guy a little water. Kevin Klein, whose character's name is Peyton, uh, says something inaudible. He gives him a little more water. And then he says, pleased to meet you. <laughs> Which we immediately like this guy. Yeah. And so does Emmett. Emmett smiles, and we cut to this uh, uh, little ki- by campfire, and we hear the tail end of Emmett's story, which is just some guys jumped me out of nowhere. I don't know why. And then, and, and then we have this very small moment. Offend anybody lately? Not for five years. Hmm. Which means he just got out of prison, right? Jefferson City. No, Leavenworth. Never been in there. Which means that both of these guys have been in prison. Yes. Both of these guys have been criminals. Right. And it's done with a couple of lines. It's beautiful, beautiful uh, storytelling. Yeah. And if you want to dive even deeper, Scott Glenn coming out of Leavenworth, that was historically known as one of the hardest prisons at that mm. time to experience and endure. Certainly during the Civil War, I think there are a number of uh, uh, tales about mm. people who served in Leavenworth and the terrible conditions that they did. So, Costner, so I'm sorry, so Kevin Klein, Peyton, he's oh, I never served there. Yeah, right, because you didn't come out hardened like Scott Glenn is, right? There's just a difference in how they both were put in certain prisons and came out differently from those prisons as well. I mean, if you wanted to go deeper into like reading there a little bit of the levels that they're playing with there in terms of their characters and the way they're being presented. Well, and I think, you know, we we don't ever get to know a lot about these guys' nope. history. We only get a little bit, yeah. but we can tell by their behavior the things that Hayden is more sophisticated. Right. He cares more about his clothes. He cares about saloons. He has more culture. He's probably better <laughs> read. You know, that that Scott Glenn is a tough guy who probably didn't grow up with very much at all. Yeah. Like, we can get this just from looking at them. Yeah. You know? And seeing how they behave. And then we hear a little bit of Peyton's story, which like he's like, he's riding along and some guys come up and they say, hey, we will ride with you for a while. And his line is great. He says, I always figure you might as well approach life like everybody's your friend or nobody is. Don't make much difference. (laughs) There's this kind of Zen attitude about Peyton. Yeah. You know? He has a certain way of moving through life yeah. that's very interesting. Well, it almost seems like he's cursed yes. being a good, a good gunslinger. Like he's cursed with this thing that he does really well, but he hates that this is the gift he has. Like he'd rather have the gift to make money or be a businessman or, or you know, run a ranch or something. But uh, the fact that he is a gunslinger, he has come to terms with it. And so he deals with it in a Zen kind of philosophy kind of way so that he can function in the world. Out in the middle of that frying pan, suddenly everybody's pointing their gun, but me. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks maybe they admired his horse. <laughs> and I like Scott Glad goes, it's not all they admire. <laughs> you know, they stripped him down to nothing. At least they didn't kill me. That was right considerate, I thought. They were laughing when they left me. Thought it was real funny. Oh yeah, see, so the revenge thing, right? That's you can't have a good western without revenge, Steve. You just can't. I'm sorry, you just can't. Well, and the way he plays it, because he plays everything so soft. Yeah, 
it ends up being kind of more intense than an angry portrayal was. Oh, yeah. And and Emmett asks, where's he going? And he says, where's the Pinto going? <laughs> cut to the two of them riding into town. Again, great storytelling in the cut. And Kevin Klein riding in his union suit in the Long Johns is just a lot of fun. <laughs> Kevin gets off and, and Emmett tosses him a coin and he says, I'm good for it. And then some ladies walk by and he goes to tip his hat. He <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have a hat. Then he sees his horse. Yeah. And things get real serious real quick, and his first reaction is to draw his gun. Which is not there. <laughs> Doesn't have a gun. Cut to a store. Runs in, grabs a gun out of a case, spins it, tests it. Uh, and, and the storekeeper is going, oh, hold on, I'm dealing with another customer. And he goes, look, I'll just take this one, puts the coin down. And the guy stops him with some, like, you know, fabric shears or something. Yeah. And says... <laughs> That one is $20. <laughs> and Kevin's response is, how much to borrow? <laughs> the guns are for sale. <laughs> and, what, and what's great, again, this is why Kasdan is a master screenwriter, is that you could just have him get a gun. Oh, totally. You could just have him get a, have enough money to get him gun. Right. You could just have him be the only person in the store. You could have the store owner be a nice guy. You could do all of those things. Those would all make the scene less interesting. What makes it interesting is all the conflicts and obstacles right. necessary for him to get the gun. Yeah. And he asks, how much can I get for this? Again, the storytelling in the cut, cut to the most falling apart. Even the, the, the um, chamber doesn't even stay in the revolver. <laughs> But at least it was enough to get some bullets as well. So he was able to run there with a box of bullets. And he runs outside. And we see the guy uh, who had stolen the horse. He's gotten on the horse. Yeah. He sees uh, Peyton. Peyton's only had enough time to get one bullet in the chamber of this crappy gun. The guy is charging towards him, fires, shoots the crotch out of the long johns. And then Peyton shoots him dead with one shot. Just utter calmness. Utter calmness. Utter. Once again, he's a, he's just a natural gunslinger. Uh, and so, you know, there's no shaking. Even when he shoots him through the long johns, which most people would be freaking out about, uh, oh, yeah. uh, he is very calm and and, and just going. It's just like Clint Eastwood says at the end of Unforgiven, you know, you just kind of, uh, I just, I've always been lucky with the order of the killing, but he's always calm. You know, we just, because most people will shoot or go too crazy. If you just stay calm, you can win a gunfight. And so in that moment, you see that. That's, that's a evidence as well. Um, well, and again, this is this is why it's such a well-crafted film, is you get this character so interesting yeah. without hearing really any backstory, without hearing him talk that much. Mm -hmm. It's through his behavior that we go, oh, wow, he is a badass, but he's also kind of soft-spoken yeah. and has this strange Zen attitude. But you wouldn't want to go up against Peyton. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm sure, dangerous. Steve, yeah. I'm sure you know this. The ones that are crazy and flipping out and blah, blah, blah. Those aren't the really dangerous ones. The dangerous ones are the quiet ones right. who are just when everyone else is freaking out, they're really quiet. That's the one you want. You got to be afraid of. Right. I mean, look in apocalypse now, when they go to the ass end of the universe into that uh, weird area, right? Uh, the other guys are flipping out or yelling or screaming or whatever. And it's the chill dude with the grenade launcher who's just leaning sure. against the wall that they call on to really kick, kick, kill those people. And so it's the calm ones that should scare the living hell out of you every time. Well, and that's part of why Brian Dennehy is such a great yep. villain in this film. Yeah. Is he's never he's never freaking out. Nope. No. He's once. supremely confident. Mm -hmm. 
Um, speaking of which, we're about to get to him because we're with the cavalry and they're asking about this shooting. And we hear, you know, he says the horse is stolen. And at this moment, Kevin Klein is literally making out with the <laughs> yeah, horse. Yeah, that's great. And he says, Can you see this horse loves me? And the next line, I love. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I had a gal do that to me. It didn't make her my wife. <laughs> <laughs> And he says he's got his name uh, scratched under the saddle. And when they ask the name, we hear a voice from off camera say, Hayden. And there is Brian Dennehy. P-A-D-E-N. Looking huge and splendid and smiling. And the reaction from Kevin Klein at this moment to seeing this guy in this place at this moment is great. Yeah. You sense all this history. And then Cobb asks, Where's the dog? Right. (laughs) Which is going to be a running thing. It's going to be a running thing, yeah. And again, this is mystery. This is Mm -hmm. why movies are are really mysteries, because now we're going, what's this this about the dog? (laughs) I'm looking for some men. What particular skill set is it that Peyton has that Cobb wants? Yeah, exactly. The gunslinger. He's the gunslinger. So it's like no one's going to cross him. Uh, and like he does later in the film, he puts him in charge of that bar because he knows that he can handle himself if anything gets out of hand. So he is just that. He's muscle. I mean, he's glorified muscle. He's great muscle, but he's muscle, you know? And if, I think that yeah. I, I think everything you've said is true. Yeah. But I also think there's a fundamental difference between Peyton and Tyree, which the, is his current second. The movie. Jeff Fahey character. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, right. I was just going to say that, like, he would probably prefer. For Ke- for Kevin Klein to be his second in command in that situation, but he has Fahey to rely on now because Klein won't do it. But Klein, I mean, that's why he wants him there. He wants to eventually wear him down and convince him to be that in that position. So uh, that's why he tries to like just butter him up the whole time. Well, and I think that although I do think that uh, uh, Payton is a better gunslinger than Tyree. Yeah. But I don't think that's the reason that Cobb wants him. Mm-hmm. I think it's because it's intelligence, it's calm, it's that Zen attitude. Yeah, yeah sure. You know, is that Cobb is three steps ahead of everybody, almost everybody else in the film, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. including Tyree. Tyree is a follower. Yeah. But Payton is a person who would understand right. what Cobb is doing. That's part of why I think he wants him. Yeah. I've given that up. So have I. I got a legitimate job now. Of course, we don't hear what that legitimate job is, but Peyton says no. He says, I'm not interested in it. Right. And at that moment, we see who you just said, Jeff Fahey, Tyree getting um, unshackled. Right. And the look he ha- make, makes at Peyton and the look they have towards each other, you are very clear. These guys are not pals. Yeah, these guys have probably had run-ins while they were yeah. all riding together because Jeff Fahey probably feels intimidated by Kevin's calmness yes, or Peyton's calmness and Peyton's intelligence. Uh, and it flies in the face because Fahey's aware or the, uh, whatever his name is, he's aware that he can't achieve that. He doesn't have that instinct within him. Uh, so he always looks uh, in lower status to someone like Peyton and it bothers him. Yes. That's exactly what I think, too. Yeah. And, of course, what does uh, Tyree say as he rides past Peyton? Where's the dog? Where's the dog? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the last thing Cobb says is, you owe me $13. Right. And Peyton says, 13 Bad luck. <laughs> and once again, he says that, what, in a medium-range close-up, and his lips barely move when he says it. Right. Once again, calm, calm. Always calm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And then he's back with Scott Glenn and Scott Glenn's like, oh yeah, that is a nice ha- horse. And he's like, yeah, now the only thing I really miss is my hat. And I love this line as he's playing with this ugly kind of hat. It's like, spent three years training it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we hear that Emmett is going to Turley to meet a guy and then they're heading to Silverado. And Kevin, who doesn't have anywhere to go, Peyton says, what's the town like? This town? Got a saloon. Much back. Women. And then we know that Payton's going to go to Turley. Yeah, so does so does Emmett when he smiles. Yeah, this relationship between Emmett and Payton is one of those kind of instant friendships. Yep, I yep. think. Yep, they so, get each other right from the beginning. Yeah, it's a bromance, certainly. Total, but a really unspoken one. Yes, right. You know, they just kind of like, oh, I, I get what you're about. That's how it was back then, Steve. We didn't need a lot of words, you know. <laughs> all you and I have are words. That's right. <laughs> Maybe we need to go off on a ride to Turley or Yeah, I'm down. The old way some- they wouldn't have podcasts in the old West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then you could get to truly be the outlaw. That's uh, a fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Uh and they're <laughs> riding off through the snow, and it's just beautiful. By the way, the reason, one of the big reasons they shot in New Mexico, in addition to the fact that the scenery is beautiful, yeah. is they had to shoot in the winter. So they couldn't shoot in the north. They had to shoot in the southern states wow. uh, where it's not quite as cold. But yeah. it was still really cold yeah. for a lot of this shoot. And they come up in Turley. We see a, a wagon train there. We see Rosanna Arquette is there. We see a gallows being built. This is all planting the seeds of the story. Yeah. And then the, one of the guys from the from the wagon train comes up, who's actor whose name I don't remember, but he's in tons of stuff. Yeah, he's in Blade Runner, yeah. Oh, right, right, right. right. Uh, he says, Baxter, Holly, where the hell you been? You're late, and I tell you, I don't like it. It's a bad start, boys. I love that line. It's a bad start, boys. It's a bad start. <laughs> bad start. <laughs> Afraid it is a bad start, Fred, because my name ain't Baxter. He ain't Holly. You're not Baxter? Name's Emmett. <laughs> this is just good <laughs> comedy. You're not Baxter either. No, I'm not Holly. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This is great. <laughs> That's the classic. That's like the Bugs Bunny or Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills cop joke where yeah. you have a character making a joke. But the person he's making the joke to does not understand the joke. <laughs> they just roll past. And then the real Baxter and Holly show up and they say, okay, we're ready to guide your wagon train. And they give him, they open up a chest full of money and they give him a, some money. And, and the guy says, do you need to count it? And he goes, no, no, we trust you, friend. Yeah. And there's just a little look mm-hmm. between Emmett and Peyton where yeah. they know you're not, that's, you can't trust the guy who's well, not going to count the money. Well, to be fair, don't show him the box of money to start yeah. off with. And, and second of all, make don't uh, don't accept the fact that he won't count it. It's later. They're having a nice little meal in the saloon. And in comes Danny Glover. Yeah. Malachi. And he puts down his rifle. He rings his bell, goes to the bar. Peyton and Emmett are at the table watching. And the woman comes out. This woman is Lawrence Kasdan's wife. Oh, okay. What do you want? I haven't had a drink of whiskey or slept in the bed in 10 days. He is so good in this role. Oh, man. He puts his money down, says, give me a bottle. And then the owner comes out, sees him. And immediately from his reaction, we know what this situation is about to be. Of course. Is that he is not allowed to be at the bar. And then, of course, these patrons who are just sitting at the bar at a separate table 
uh, immediately feel the need to step on this guy or, you know, kind of play out their racism cards in that moment and, and try to intimidate this guy. By the way, this is what, two years before Lethal Weapon? Is that right? Two or three years before Lethal three. Weapon? It's 85. I think Lethal Weapon's 88. 88? Okay. Yeah. So it's like, and he was too old for this shit in 88. He is young and strapping in this movie. I think he's like a full on in his 30s strapping man uh, uh danny glover is so it's interesting that like just two or three years later he's playing a guy in his 40s he's like i can't do over this shit you know i think he's supposed to be fit it's funny we did supposed to be 50. A long supposed to be 50 i think he's supposed to be 50 yeah. i think it's his 50th birthday and that's right I think he and gibson are like the same age Roger. they're very close in yeah age. no surprise <laughs> um and uh and again he's just like i just want to drink and these guys have surrounded him and Payton and Emmett are looking, yeah. and Payton says, "Doesn't look quite fair." And Emmett's line is great. Which way do you mean? Because he knows he can tell. <laughs> yeah. And they attack him, and he wipes him out, mm-hmm. destroying a bunch of furniture in the process. Yeah. Um, and it's very like the power of Danny Glover, the way that they choreograph this fight scene is great. And the uh, owner comes out with a shotgun and he knocks him down. And then in walks the sheriff <laughs> of <laughs> the all the people, un- <laughs> the most unusual sheriff in any Western yeah. in history. Like if you pulled the entire crowd on opening night from every theater, how many people would have really come up with John Cleese walking through the door as the sheriff of the town? What's all this then? <laughs> and yet, so British. Great. Oh, he's perfect. My God, great. he's perfect. Yeah. I asked him to leave and he went crazy on us. Now, he owes me money for all this then. Is that a fact? Great not, sure. Uh, John Cleese sides with uh, Mao and we think this is going to be okay. And he says... Oh, knowing a bit about Carter here, I'm going to let you go without paying for the damage. But go, you will, and I mean now. Yeah place in town that takes my kind you misunderstand i want you out of town in fact i want you all the way out of my jurisdiction that ain't right i decide what's right in this jurisdiction now um and that that sort of turn with his character is, is very interesting yeah and what does mal do does he just immediately shrug his shoulders and walk out of the bar he walks back yeah and has his shot because if he's he gonna get that shot exactly if he's gonna get run out of town he's gonna get his whiskey and he savors it yeah that is a moment of pure beautiful defiance yes yes it is and then cleese comes over and sits down with our guys and mm-hmm. takes one of their biscuits and starts eating now let's talk about you chaps <laughs> And he talks about maintaining the peace. And the party, what he does is he asks strangers their business. Have you come for the hanging? And they go, no, I'm just looking for a guy. And they describe this young guy full of juice. And there's a pause. <laughs> while he's biting his biscuit, while he's eating his biscuit, there's that pause. I'm like, okay. Uh, and he says, <laughs> I know where that gentleman is. Cut to jail. Yeah. I know I've been bringing this up a lot in the last many podcasts. But this idea of the storytelling in the cut, Mm -hmm. this is just, it's just such an important filmmaking thing is he could have said, yes, I know that guy, he was arrested for killing this other person and now he's in jail and he just had a trial and he's going to go, but it's way better to go. Are you here for the hanging? I know where that gentleman is cut to him. Right. And we get, it's funny that we had never done a Kevin Costner movie and now we're doing two almost back to back. Oh yeah. Good point. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think this his performance in this movie is unlike any other Kevin Costner performance anywhere. I would agree with that. Um, I think maybe Fandango is the closest thing. I think that was the film he was in or, or losing it. I think maybe that's Tom Cruise. But either way, that was the closest you'll get to him being this kind of like uh, exuberant, uh, excitable, young yeah. energy. Because you, most of the time, he's a very like solid dude, you know. And uh, especially after this, I don't think he ever does anything like, quite like this after this movie. And remember, this is on the heels of him being cut out of Kasdan's Big Chill uh, as the body in the uh, in the coffin. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the big reasons that he's here. And uh, and I love he's kind of he's got so much energy he, he can't stop moving. What's going on here? You got me. This is a crazy town, Emmett. I, I think we ought to just get out of here. <laughs> All I did was kiss a girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I kissed a girl, and and, um, and this guy didn't like it, and so then we had some words, so I decided to get out of there. And as he's stalking more, he climbs up yeah. on the jail cell yeah. and starts doing the monkey bars. He's like a kid with ADD, just kind of all over the place, right? He just has totally. to swing on the bars and do it. So I love that this is such a smart and unusual character choice for a Western. Like, you've never seen anything like this in a Western. And again, you get his character, oh, yeah. just like with Emmett and, and with Mal and with Peyton. You mm-hmm. get him right away. Yeah. And then we hear, like... No, it was his friend, his friend with the shotgun. And Junkley says, the dead one. <laughs> um, and we hear that he's going to hang at dawn. And Emmett kind of says, Lion Pete always said you'd hang. I guess tomorrow at dawn, he'll be proved right. 10 a.m. All right. I always thought they did it at dawn. <laughs> that is some great code talking. Yeah, exactly. Between the two. I love that you start with Lion Pete. <laughs> I think anytime, John, anytime I have to speak to you in code, <laughs> Fair I'm enough. going to start with Lion Pete. I like it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lion Pete says Deal. we should get out of this party. Lion Pete says we got to go. Yeah. <laughs> no, Lion Pete says we should stay here all night. All right. All night. Now, he he would leave at 9 p.m., but he thinks we should stay all night. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Hate to see any man swing. It's bad luck. Bad luck for me. Gotta bust him out of there. And consistent to Klein's character, Peyton's character, he says, I can't have any part of that, right? Because he yeah. doesn't want to be on any kind of uh breaking the law or anything like that. Like he's he's very clear about what he wants to do with his life now. Well, and what's so interesting is it, you know, and it makes sense because I think two of the greatest rogues in film history are Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Yeah. Two characters, basically, who, who I mean, Han Solo was not created by Lawrence Kasdan, but his greatest stuff is in, in Empire. Right. In this, we have Peyton and Emmett are both criminals. Mm-hmm. They've both been in jail. They both killed people. Yeah. Um, you have Mal, who was run out of town by the police. And you have Jake, who's in jail. And these are our four heroes. Yeah. And what's so interesting about all four of them is they're all deeply moral people. Yes. So, so it's that it's not that they're rogues in the way that Han Solo is a rogue, but they are sort of outside of society on some level, but actually really good people. And, and and Peyton is like, is going to be continually torn between doing what he knows to be right and wanting to stay out of stuff. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to go back to jail. Yeah. Um, But what we find out is that Emmett is uh, that Emmett is Jake's brother and that they're supposed to head to California and they're supposed to meet. Family in Silverado, and he yeah. can't go there and tell them, "Oh, I saw Jake, and I just let him get hanged." Yeah. Right, right. Then I guess this is where we part ways. 
Sorry. No hard feelings. I'll tell you what, let's go to the saloon, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> you don't have any money. <laughs> you buy me a drink. And they walk into the saloon. What do they see? <laughs> Dude with a really nice hat. And we see that thing that you described before is the Zen calm come over Peyton. And he steps forward and says very softly, You're wearing my hat. <laughs> Um, and the guy kind of tries to talk himself out, uh, out of it. And I, I like, you look over at Scott Glenn and he's just sort of cleared the way yeah. for his gun. <laughs> yeah. He's not doing anything yet, no, no. but he's getting ready to do it. I hope your fingers aren't tickling my ivory handled cold. And he's just still got that crappy gun in his pocket. <laughs> the one where the, the, the chamber just falls out. Right. And then the guy stands up to try to kill him and Peyton draws and kills him. Yeah. And we see that hat, that beautiful hat fall to the ground and cut to Peyton's in the cell. Yeah. <laughs> he, he says, you're making a big mistake. And Kevin Coster slapping his thighs yeah. says, that's what I told him. <laughs> Such a great uh, connection between them two in that way. Yeah. And again, it set it up perfectly, which is that Peyton had said, I'm not going to help you bust this guy out. Right. Now he's in. Right. So now he's oh, got to get busted out. Right. And Emmett is on the gallows. He's whittling something. Um, and, and, and he and uh, Kevin Costner, Peyton and Kevin Costner, the Kevins are alone together. And he's like, look, aren't you going to come with me when Emmett busts us out? And he's like, look, first of all, I don't know that's going to happen. <laughs> and second of all, it was totally self-defense. And <laughs> Costner's like, yeah, that's what happened with me too. <laughs> so great. Uh, so the other guy drew first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if Jake didn't have Emmett for a big brother, Jake would be dead. Jake would be oh, yeah. so dead so many times over, man. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, this is not the first time that mm. Emmett bailed him out of a situation. Not even close. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the sense I get is Emmett has bailed a lot of people out of a lot of situations. Probably. He seems you know. very much like the patriarch of the situation, whatever situation he's in, you know. Well, and he is a heroic guy. Yeah. You know, like we later find out that he went to jail for killing the father of one of the bad guys in this movie. Right, right. But my assumption is that that guy, he did it to save a life, yep. you know. Yeah. Or a number of lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, John Cleese is playing chess with himself. <laughs> and a kid runs up and says, Sheriff, Sheriff, come quick. That is Lawrence Kasdan's son. Yeah, it's Jake. Yeah, the stable boy. Who would be right? Who would write solo? Part of the oh, solo. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And the sheriff heads off, and the deputy hears something in the jail cell, and he comes in, and there's Kevin Klein. Yeah. There's no Kevin Costner. Um, and he's looking around and he sees the bunk and he goes, Oh, he thinks a coster's hanging over the bunk, and he's like, All right, come out. And then he calls Kevin Klein over to him, and Kevin Klein awkwardly <laughs> shuffles towards him. And the guy asks for his hands to put through the bars to cuff him up. And as yeah. he's doing that, a fist comes out of the middle <laughs> of the two hands because Coster is wearing the same coat, <laughs> which is very, very fun. Is it who's? I think it's Klein's hand who punches him, isn't it? Or is it Coster's? I think it's Klein's hand. <laughs> think so i think his i think you're right i think that coster's arms are around him right through the sleeves of the coat it's a big coat by the way it is a big coat <laughs> uh 
Um, Good thing no one took his coat. <laughs> and John Cleese has now found that the gallows are on fire. Um, and he is heading back. And we see our guys with their with their guns now. And yeah. they come outside. And immediately Jake goes... <laughs> <laughs> calmly after that Peyton says shh <laughs> this movie's so much fun for me yeah. why antagonize why are you antagonizing just be quiet I love it um, and then we have this little bit of gunfight and one thing I want to point out about this as different townspeople in different positions come out to attack these two criminals who come out of and I think it's the deputies too mm-hmm. is that at no time do Jake or Kevin Klein try to kill anybody right right it's like there's a guy on the stairs, and Kev and, and and Jake opens fire with his two guns and hits the steps below his feet to yeah. force that guy up into the building. Right. They ne- and, and what we know, we certainly already seen it with Peyton, is that they could kill these guys at any moment. Oh yeah, if they wanted to, sure. But Absolutely. they don't want to. Right. Um, sheriff shows up. Um, Emmett appears with the horses, and then they jump on the horses. Uh, and then I think that is really Kevin Costner jumping on that horse. Mm. Um, and the big theme plays, and they ride away, and the sheriff and a posse follow them. This is classic, classic Western stuff. Oh, yeah. Beautiful chase through the mountains. The scenery is, is gorgeous. Through a canyon, winding path, posse's on the ridge above. They're taking yeah. aim at our guys, and suddenly there's a gunshot. And there's a whole bunch of shots right near them. And one of the posse guys says, Well, let's go. He ain't hitting nothing. He's hit everything he's aimed at. And of course, this is Mal, Danny Glover, with the Henry rifle. And Steve, let me ask you a question. Because, is that, yeah, because they, you know, uh, Cleese tries to get up and Malachi shoots the hat off his head. And he says to the guys that, Well, the jurisdiction goes, Today my jurisdiction ends here. And they all turn around and go back. Yeah. So Danny Glover, essentially, because he was saved early, well, saved, yeah, to a degree, earlier in the bar, he is now fast friends with these guys. Right, right. So once again, this is this connecting thing. And and this is the deft line I think you have to walk when you write a movie, right? And is this, everything is a plant. Almost everything is a plant. You've got to be organic with how you plant it. It has to feel natural in the flow of things. And it has to feel plausible, right? This feels plausible, A, because they saved him by defending him against John Cleese uh, in that bar. But also, second, because John Cleese sends him out of town. So he wouldn't have even been there if there had been a section for his kind, being black people in the West. If there had been a section of town... The uh, Malachi would not have been on that ridge to shoot at. And if the sheriff hadn't been the one who sent him out of town, Malachi might not have been so inclined to defend these guys against a sheriff. You know, I'm sure a black uh, cowboy in the West wasn't rushing to, you know, defend people against a sheriff, you know. And so you look at that. And so that's what I want to point out here is that there are there, everything's a plus. People go like, oh, well, our plants, uh, if you can spot a plant that makes a script bad. No, if you if the plant works organically then the script is good. Well, if you, if you just are watching a movie and a thing happens and you go, oh, yeah. that's going to come back later. That's going to come back later. That's right. not a good plan. Right, exactly. If you see our characters act within character by defending this guy and telling the truth, yeah. and that, and we see this sheriff acting within character and kicking this guy out of town, and those two things lead this character to make a choice, you didn't see those things coming. They just make sense. Same right. thing with Peyton, who goes, I can't get involved with you're busting your brother out. Right. But then his 
setup is I miss my hat, which right. we planted perfectly before when we see yeah. the, from yeah. before. Yeah. And so that leads him to be in jail. And now that Emmett has busted him out too, yeah. Payton is now bonded with Emmett right. in a way that he wasn't before. Exactly. And this is, and again, like I know I've said it before on the show, but screenwriting is is often just kind of mathematical, mm-hmm. is that you have this equation, okay, I have to, I need to do this and this and this to get this. Right. But if I move this one thing, then all of that falls apart. And I'm sure this is actually, as much as the movie is a fun, rollicking, good time, it's actually a really complicated story. Yeah. With all of these relationships that have to be set up and maintained and planted properly and then paid off. Yeah. And it's done just beautifully. And now what we have is without anybody saying anything, like in in the Avengers, you have um, Nick Fury has put the team together and he's put the team together for this reason. Here, the team has come together. Mm -hmm. They're just together. And now there are four of them riding in this with the theme across the desert in tandem in these beautiful shots. And we're like, yes. just feels great um by the way one thing about this two 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 things they have the the four horses riding next to each other yeah uh horses i'm i'm told don't genuinely like to ride right run right next to each other in tandem Mm. they either want to be a little bit in front or a little bit behind they're not that comfortable totally parallel so that took a lot of training and scott glenn had barely ever been on a horse before this movie So these guys had to learn how to really do it to get the horses to do this. The other thing about it is they were in the middle of the desert, and you see these shots that are tracking with them, which means, first of all, you got to have a camera on a, on a vehicle mm-hmm. because it's got to go 10, 15, 20 miles an hour in pace with the horses. Right. But the camera is also moving up and down, which means it's on a crane. Well, that thing needs a really smooth road because if it's got a bumpy road, then you don't get a, bump, you don't get a smooth shot. Mm. Because it's a big, huge crane on top of a truck with a camera on it that's got to move up and down. Right. So in order to do these these shots where we're tracking with these horses, they had to build a road. Oh. Oh. Okay. Wow. You know. Okay. Yeah. Because and, and then because you don't want this road in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico, yeah. they have to tear down the road and put everything back the way it was before. And then they they ride up to this beautiful panorama, and there in the distance is the wagon train. Yep. Another plant and playoff. And we get down there, and it ends up that Baxter and Holly were not actually trustworthy. What a surprise. And they killed a dude and stole all the money. Forget the money. you got to get these people out of here. We got no life in Silverado without that money. Everybody put in. It's our whole stake. And I love that it's Mal that starts this, is he kind of looks around and sees the, all the kids yep. because he's a really good guy. Yeah. And he goes, how long they've been gone? And Mal mounts up. And yeah. Jake immediately is like, I'll go with you because Jake, is, as Emmett said, is full of juice and he's ready for some adventuring anytime. He's always itching for a fight. Yeah. And what is interesting, too, about this group, there is no question really about who the leader is. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Because it's they're Emmett. all connected through Emmett. And, and I think Peyton, Peyton has no desire to be leader. No. He, he's happy not being the alpha dog in the situation. Jake, you know the way out of here. And when you get this train moving towards Silverado and fast, I'll go with these guys. You men, stay with your wagons and your families. Get rolling. Keep your eyes peeled. And immediately, Peyton makes eye contact with Rosanna. <laughs> okay, yeah. He goes, maybe I should stay. 
<laughs> so begins a very complicated triangle here between uh, Scott Glenn, Kevin Klein, and Rosanna Arquette. It's a very complicated well, triangle. Well, that was the th- the biggest thing that's cut out of the movie. Yeah, is they really developed a love triangle oh. with them. Oh, there was a whole whole bunch of scenes, really? and they just kind of decided it didn't work. Huh. Um, that they actually did each romancer, and that's why you see little kind of leftovers from that like mm-hmm. there's scenes with scott glenn talking to her and she's like oh you're saying goodbye and it's like well they never had a relationship yeah it was weird right those scenes they seem a it's bit out of place it's cut out yeah okay yeah it's cut they out even include them okay what kasdan said was we had a great idea for a character but we never really knew what to do with it mm. of her like being the the beautiful woman we'll talk about later but the yeah. beautiful woman but really wants to be a farmer yeah and that what people want out of a beautiful woman is not what right she wants to give and I agree. I think that's a really interesting character. Yeah. I also think, and we'll get to this too, but I think that the Roseanne Arquette character, in terms of Kevin Klein, gets totally eclipsed by Linda Hunt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Who I think is such a more powerful relationship. Oh, yeah. For She's so many awesome. reasons. Yeah. So we write off and we find the bad guys who are at some big bad guy hideout. This is like the hole in the wall gang at the <laughs> hole in the wall hideout, right? Yeah. yeah. And they look over the <laughs> cliff and we hear, anybody got any ideas? Oh, and one other thing is that the big guy who is Rosanna Arquette's husband yes. has gone with them because he doesn't trust our guys. Right. You know, Baxter and Holly betrayed him. Why aren't these guys going to betray them? And, you know, little known fact, he's wearing a red shirt under his uh, shirt because he's a red shirt guy. And we know what's going to happen to him. <laughs> <laughs> as soon, as, soon awesome. as he decides to go along, you know what his fate is going to be. <laughs> um, we're down with our bad guys and Emmett rides in with Peyton, you know, laid over the horse, like a dead body. And the head bad guy is a guy who's going to be in a movie we're about to do. That's true. Yeah. It's James Gammon. Yeah. And he is also in, look, I'm not going to say what film this is, but the, you could go through his IMDb and maybe figure out what's coming next. I think you can figure <laughs> it out, Dorn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And now Scott Emmett's got to do a performance because he says there's a posse coming. This and then he rattles, off, he rattles off some names of like Tex LaRue. He used to ride with Ryan Marsh. You know him. Well, Andy Sims told me there's a hideout near here, so I headed for it. Hope you don't mind. And with his great voice, uh, uh, James Gammon says, Mind? You brought a posse to my best hideout and you asked me if I mind? Mister, I don't know any of those names. You're about to die. (laughs) (laughs) And then suddenly, gunshots. If we charge them, they won't stand a chance. But first, we got to get to them horses. Horses? What the hell are you talking about? Cover me! I love he runs towards the horses. (laughs) Rifle shots hitting right near his feet, right behind him. (laughs) There's just a great look. Right. You don't gotta make it so realistic, Malachi. <laughs> Love that. He's like, what are you doing? Brave man. I think there's only a couple of guys up there, and this asshole is one of them. <laughs> and this is why, you know, we talked about it so many times. Is like we're not really taking violence that seriously in this film, right? This is just a totally fun moment. He gets the horses to stampede. Kevin Klein is tied the the big money box to the back of the horses and they ride off with the theme, (laughs) go up this cool corkscrew Canyon, dragging the money box behind them, take out some other guys and they get out and they go, Hey, we did it. That was a great plan. And then we hear the cock of a rifle. I knew it. I knew you guys couldn't be trusted. (laughs) So Danny Glover says, Mr. You got a lot to learn about people. 
And just as this moment, we see like a, a sniper, like up on a hill above them. He fires. He kills our red shirt big yeah. guy. Yeah. And they, in unison, all draw simultaneously and all kill the guy. Yeah. Exactly. Which, again, is cool. It's later. We're at a campfire. Um, Mal is kind of telling just the tiniest bit of his backstory, which is he's going to meet his family. His mom wrote to him uh, from Silverado. He was in Chicago. And he says he was working in a slaughterhouse. And they go, and, and Jake is like, you've been in Chicago? You've been in Chicago? Was it wonderful? No. No. <laughs> right? And right there is just this little subtle thing, right? Malachi's been through some shit. And so his perspective on the world is going to be a little bit different. You know, a black man in Chicago, no matter how metropolitan the city was, it still was, you know, uh, a well, racist and working city. In- and working in the slaughterhouse, yeah, which exactly. is a notorious. I mean, the Chicago slaughterhouses—that's where. Let's say this movie takes place in the 1880s. Yeah, 1900 is when I'm not sure which year it is. It's around 1900 that Upton Sinclair right. writes *The Jungle*, yep, the which jungle. is about slaughterhouses and working conditions, and it yep. does not sound like it was a fun place to be. Yeah. Um, well, and I will say Lawrence Kasdan is a master screenwriter. Yeah. And take it from a master screenwriter. You know, there's all this talk about backstory. We got to have backstory. Mm-hmm. What you want is to create characters that are interesting and have good story. Mm-hmm. Him saying, I've been to Chicago. I worked in the slaughterhouse. Was it wonderful? No. Yeah. We're not saying what happened. Right. That no is what makes him an interesting character. If he said, oh, it was terrible, this and this and this and this and this happened, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it would be less interesting than no. Right. But I, and I also think, and I agree with your point, but I also think that's why you cast really good actors. Because, 100%. Because totally. they, right? Because they give the levels and complexity to the lines that they're given to convey a backstory that you get just enough of a brushstroke about that it resonates with you so that you can either go with them if they're the protagonist uh, or understand them when they're in the antagonist. And so I, that's Danny Glover's nope. It just carries so much weight because you can just sense from the way he's playing it that he's talking about a multiple terrible experiences that he had there. Well, and this is what actor, you know, this is the job of the actors mm-hmm. to fill in well, what does no mean? Right. Even though we don't know what the no meant, we know that he knows. Right. We right. can see the wheels turning in his head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then up walks Peyton and they're like, where you been? And he's like, oh, I was just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and Jake's response is like, geez, Peyton, our old man ain't even cold yet. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So brilliant. And we're off again, beautiful, scenic, forging a river with the wagons and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, then Mal rides up and says, you know, this is where I say goodbye. And my mom said that our farm is up near that notch. Yeah. And they kind of say, I'll see you around. And then Peyton says, you know what? I think I'm going to ride with this lady, see the farmland, see what makes a trip this hard worth taking. Mm. And there's kind of looks with Roseanne Arquette and they say goodbye. And Emin and Jake ride off, and we see Silverado in the distance. Yeah. Um, and this is a place called the Cook Ranch, which mm-hmm. they built for this film. Oh, wow. Uh, it's still there. It's been used for tons of movies, mm-hmm. including Wyatt Earp. They shoot there all the time right now. Hmm. Really important movie set out in New Mexico. This is where we hear that story, the thing we were talking about before with Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. Which is that she's a pretty woman, and men look go after a pretty woman for a certain reason, and yep. they're not. that's not what she wants. Right. Right. Um, they say that at first, uh, but then they don't want what I want. And they don't I, want I, what I want. And I want to build something. 
you know, and that's and and, and right, and that's a fair like. You're right, Steve. You look at this character; like there could have been more here because uh, she's such an unusual female character in westerns. Um, most of the times, uh, the woman in the westerns is like, you know, the wife of the or the the one having the affair with the gunslinger or the the protagonist, you know, something like that. But uh, it's rarely the one who who wants to actually build out something, become a businesswoman, right? Like Destry Rides Again is one of those rare ones where a woman is mm. the lead of that film who runs the saloon and no one uh, messes with her. So the, the, I like that they care. So it is what you said. It's a shame that they didn't have an, uh, or didn't figure out how to flesh this thing out a little bit more because she could have been a very interesting part of the film as well. Well, you know the expression, the, uh, you know, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. Right, right. I, I wish I could figure out what uh, an expression for this, which is that there are sometimes things that are on the page yeah, and you shoot them right, and then you're in post and it's just not happening. Yeah. 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 You know, mm-hmm. and it, and it's not that the actor did a bad job. Right. And it's not that the character wasn't well developed. It's just, I mean, you know, uh, Walter Murch, the great editor says that the primary 51% of the reason that you make a cut is emotional, not mm. story. I think he says 28% or, or 35% or something is story wow. is that the cut has to work emotionally. And I think this really relates here is that sometimes when you're cutting a film, and I've definitely had this experience, you're like, I thought this would be interesting. (laughs) But the thing I'm really interested is this thing over here. And so I have to go follow that emotionally. And if that means, and and they thought Roseanne Arquette did a great job, and they felt really, really bad. Mm. But that's not where the movie was. And so they, they went in different directions. Yeah. Um, we also see uh, Jake and Emmett re- re- renew, uh, reunited with their family, including there's a little kid there. We see Mal riding towards his place, and the music gets more dissonant, and he arrives at a, a burnt-out house, yeah. which he realizes is his family farm. Um, it was so cold when they shot this. Mm-hmm. The house was covered with snow and ice, and they had to use a blowtorch to melt it all off wow. to show the burnt-out house. That's how cold it was. And then later on, suddenly, there's a man with a rifle, which is Ezra, mm-hmm. which is Danny Glover's father. Daddy? Thought maybe Ray had come back to see me. I never thought it'd be my boy. I never thought that. Well, that guy's uh, been in a million films as well. A million movies. I remember him in Verdict. He's the, he's the doctor that's supposed to testify <gasps> and then yes. disappears. The black doctor. Yes. Yep. We've talked. That movie's come up a bunch. We got to do it, yeah. Steve. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Yeah, we, we will. Um, I remember seeing... I saw that in the theater. I remember yeah. seeing that in the oh, theater. Yeah. And that's one of those movies that's come up before where it's like, I haven't seen it that many times. There are moments I can still picture perfectly oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. from that film. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and we hear basically what's happened from dad, which is, first of all, mom's dead. Yeah. In fact, mom was sick when he, she wrote to Mal, but mm-hmm. wouldn't say anything. And we hear the Ray's gone to town and that he's gotten run off his farm and burnt out. Yeah. And that and I love the line. He says, just like Georgia. Mm. E- even though what I'll say, which I, is that I don't think the reason he's been run out here is because of race. Mm-hmm. I think here it's just because they want his land. Yeah. Yeah. And they the situation. anyone off this land. Malachi, I'm living like a wild cat in a cave in them hills, hiding out. Afraid to walk my own land. He's such a good actor, man. That voice yeah. of his is so good. What about the law? Whose law? The law here runs a man down just like these cattle. Mm. And, mm. and then Danny Glover says, That ain't right. I had enough of what ain't right. 
That's good talk. I had enough of what ain't right. <laughs> yeah, he's so good at that. Yeah, Joe Seneca, I think, is the actor's name. Uh, he's so uh, good. He's so good at that, and I love watching him. And, and the Georgia references and interesting references, and Steve, I mean, if you look at the time frame of where this is occurring, isn't this right after the Civil War? Or oh, yeah. What? yeah, right? So when he says Georgia, does he mean like Atlanta? Does he mean like Sherman's March? Is he talking about Sherman burning the city to the ground? Didn't matter what side mm-hmm. of the fence you were on, uh, he burnt it to the ground. Did they have a something? Did they have something at that time? I don't know. So it's an interesting reference to make to say Georgia and just move past it. I have no idea, but here's what I here's what I've always felt, mm. which is post Civil War, they got some land, you, you sure, know, sure, and then they were run off it. Yeah, sounds you know, right by the by the Klan. Could be that's, that. Yeah, that's what I've always imagined in my mind. Yeah, the Klan. Um, you know, because they had the moment after the Civil War, it's like, oh, things are going to be okay right now. Okay now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're not. No, they're not. Um, and they still aren't, to be honest. All right. Anyway. And now we're with Emmett's family, and this is the first time we hear that that he killed a man, that yep. Emmett killed someone. Uh, and we meet a little bit about the son. We hear we're going to California. And they go, are you worried that you're back here and that McKintrick, who's the son of the guy that killed, is going to yeah. have a problem? He's like, no, that's all done. I just did five years. I didn't know. McKintrick ought to be satisfied with that and let it lie. Back at Mal's place, here come some bad guys. And they say to Ezra, what brings you out of your hole? Mm. Ugh. I'm afraid you boys are trespassing on McKendrick land. You got it all wrong, mister. This is our place. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow we go into town and straighten that out once and for all. The next day we'll be back here farming. If I find any cattle on our land after tomorrow, I'm going to start carving them in the stakes. And believe me, that's one thing I know about. <laughs> that's great. Mister... You ever seen what a Henry rifle can do in the hands of somebody who knows how to use it? Who would that be? You? And Dad, who's behind him on the horse, aims at them. Yeah. Very cool. Peyton walks into a saloon. (laughs) He almost walks into this saloon like he's walking into church. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He inhales. He breathes the saloon in. Because you remember, didn't he ask um, Emmett, what's the first thing you ask him? There's saloons in this place. Yeah. Then he asked them if there were women. So for oh, him, yeah. the saloon is really the most important thing. Women are second. So for so the way he savors the saloon, it must mean so, it, it signifies something to him uh, instinctively. Well, and this is why the I think the relationship with Linda Hunt is so great. Yeah. In addition to the fact that she's awesome in this right. movie, yeah, and it's also why the Roseanne Arquette relationship never works as well. Yeah. Yeah, because the saloon is first. Yeah, the, exactly. The pretty girl is second. Yeah, pretty girl second. And he walks to the bar, and there is Linda Hunt, and sees immediately sees that she walks up on a ramp. Nifty. The world is what you make of it, friend. If it doesn't fit, you make alterations. <laughs> um, and we just go, wow, that's so great. This is a wonderful character moment. Yeah, but it's also a plant. Yes, you know, Good, right. just as we said, it has to feel like a great moment in the movie in yep. order to be a great plant later on. Yeah. They talk a little bit about saloons. This is what I call a saloon. Thanks, that's what I call it too. And I know what I'm talking about. You like a good saloon? It's the only place I'm happy. Me too. What's wrong with us? <laughs> Once and again, I would, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, Steve, go ahead. You um, I would just say, like the relationship with Emmett, they connect right away. Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, fast friends quick. Yeah. And oh, it's yeah. believable. And it's believable. Well, because they look at each other and they go, you get it. Yeah. 
Right. You know, not because they don't just like a saloon because they want to get a drink. Yeah. And they don't just like a saloon because they like to gamble or because they like to, you know, a guy wanting to pick up a girl or something. Right. Right. They, they love the beauty of a saloon. Yeah. Stella, are you the midnight star herself? I am. I'm always there, but I only shine at night. <laughs> Such a great line. Just, I would love just, to f- find out how they settled on Linda Hunt. Obviously, at this time, she was starting to come on as an actress. You know, Year Living Dangerously. I think she won the Oscar for that uh, a few years earlier. But, you know, it, it she pops up every once in a while. And when she does, it's great. And, of course, she had, now she's on TV shows all the time as series regulars. But I wonder how they kind of, you know, kind of made the decision to have Linda. Because it's a brilliant choice. It so works. Well, and this is, you know, Kevin Klein is a gunslinger. Yeah. You know, like the, the, um, there's so many great, you know, Jeff Goldblum we're going to get to too. Right. Is that, and this really, you know what? I really think, and I'm glad you said it before. When I was talking about Kazan being a great writer, mm. you immediately talked about the importance of great actors. Yeah. And I think Kazan gets that, mm-hmm. you know, is that because if you're a good writer, you know you need an actor that can deliver. Right. And part of that is seeing people seeing people in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Than people would expect. And this is this is a good lesson for all you people who are listening. And look, I'm not gonna I I don't teach directing in a college or a program or anything, but I'll tell you the truth as an actor. I've heard through my life, through decades of acting, these directors say that actors are movable props. And if you ever treat an actor that way as an upcoming director, you are not going to get the best performance out of them. You're just not. Nine times out of ten. And that's what you got to understand. The actors are just as important to whatever you're creating uh, uh, and what you're putting down because they will be what people are watching for the most part. Yeah, your scriptwriter nerdy friends will catch the dialogue, but most everyone else who's writing it or watching it is going to follow the actors and the journeys they go through. And if you want to get the best responses out of them, you've got to treat them with respect and understand their process. It's important. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And of course, I, I don't care how good your script is. If you don't have people, you know, it's like you got that beautiful Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Well, you need even better actors. Yeah. Yeah. You could say that stuff. You have right. great Mammoth dialogue or Tarantino right. dialogue. You need actors that can deliver. Yeah. You know, and it's funny. I, I had at least two, if not three professors when I was in film school who said exactly what you just said. Yeah. Actors are props. Yeah. See? You know? Yeah. That uh, it's insane how that is a pervasive narrative or thought amongst directors or directing teachers. And it drives me insane because when I heard it the first time, and this is when I'd known some uh, student directors uh, here in my first few years in, in California and in Los Angeles, I was shocked at the casual way with which they spoke about it. Uh, and it belies an arrogance uh, that the director is the reason anything is happening, which I think is just the most idiotic way to approach things. It is always a collaborative process. Even the greatest directors couldn't get the greatest films if the actors weren't willing to give of themselves in those performances, you know. Uh, and so that's that's what frustrates me when I hear uh, directors say that kind of crap. And it leads to dissension on the set. It leads to friction on the set, conflict on the set. It leads to problems down the road. 
mode. Uh, and it's always in, in, in acting or in directing schools. I'm always frustrated when I don't, when I talk to a director or a new up and coming director and they go, no, I never took a class about how to direct actors. And it's like, well, what the fuck are you doing? You know, I, I don't know. I just, it drives me insane when I hear stuff like that. And so I just felt like making a stand in this moment because no. you're right. Kansden writes great dialogue, but it's those actors bringing his dialogue to life. It's always in conjunction together, always, you know, always the communion of both. I'm really glad you brought it up. I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, I know we're on a digression, but I really feel like it's an important one. The, you know, first of all, there's a reason that my company is called Team Effort Films, is that I learned my second film in film school. Mm. Oh, nobody does this alone. <laughs> right. In a way that's so different from, you know, like a novelist or a painter, they do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. And even in like theater or a band or something, it's still a relatively simple job. Mm -hmm movies aren't like that and that so on 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 first of all a basic human level i don't believe the idea of actors are props is just disrespectful and yeah. terrible even if even if actors were props which they're not <laughs> and the second thing the second thing i think i really think that part of that attitude comes from certain directors who are afraid of actors. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. They don't understand it. They don't know how they work. Yeah. They they see them as these emotional people. They see them as stars that are just fundamentally different. Yeah. They see them as uh, childlike or irresponsible. And they go, and, and to dismiss them, to make them not have to treat them as humans, Right. they go, they're props. The, and the other thing is that in, when I went to, you know, I went to US, I got a master's in filmmaking from USC, which is, many people say is one of the best film schools in yep. the country. At that time, I was required to take screenwriting classes, cinematography classes, editing classes, producing classes, study how an AD worked, studied, you know, all sorts of sound classes. Mm -hmm. I had multiple classes on sound design and sound recording. I was not required to take an acting class. Yeah. And I was not required to take a music class. Yeah. And acting, those were optional. I did take music classes. I actually never took an acting class because I came from a theater background. I'd done a lot right, of acting. Right. So I wanted to do other stuff. But but just that omission, you know, the idea that you had to really edit a whole bunch of films, even if you're never going to be an editor, so you yeah. can work with an editor. Right. But you didn't have to act. Yeah. It's And it's one of the most important and essential things for a director to understand. Because, the you know, as great as you can be as a director, you set the camera up. All the perfect places you want, get the greatest cinematographer in the world. But that is a fleeting thought for most people when they're watching a movie. It's, am I invested in the emotional life of these characters and these actors? And if you're not, I don't give a, you could put it on the, we've seen great films with beautiful cinematography that don't work because the story overall and the actors playing these characters don't connect with the audience. And that's essential so it's like it's all in one so that yeah team effort makes a lot of sense dude it's all in conjunction well and I, yeah and i couldn't agree more it's it's story and performance first yeah, yeah. if that's the, and there are some rare movies where story and performance are fairly thin like 2001 comes to mind right, where, right, right, right. you know like that's not really a movie with a story that makes sense and the performances are good but they're right. also pretty simple but what are you, you talking know? about about that movie you're talking about how which is the voiceover, yeah. which is the right. actor. So it's like those things matter. As as, as beautiful oh. as the cinematography is, the direction, and then the, the, the uh, thus spoke Zarathustra, whatever that is, the score that they use, the classical piece they use, this is, uh, Hal is what people remember as well. You know, Hal and Dave, you know? Yeah. 
Um, so I know <laughs> anyway. it's a digression, but I feel like it's a really important one. Um, oh, the other one that bugs me, and I'm just and maybe I'll cut this out, but yeah. is the when I really understood the use of the word the talent. Oh, yeah. Because that's what they call actors on the set. It's like, oh, get the talent. Because <sighs> the, the talent's in the trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I've seen or felt is that that is a thing that sounds like a compliment, but is actually demeaning. It is. It is. It's meant to, it's meant to uh, be separate. It's almost separate, but equal in that way. Separate, but equal. They, they call them talent. Because it's, it's derisive. And I've always uh, bristled. Whenever I've been on a set at being called talent, I always try to tell them, just say my name, just yeah. say my name. Like, I, I don't it's so like, weird. like, yeah, I, I don't, we're all talented or else we wouldn't be fucking doing what we're doing. So just, you know, say the actor or I'd prefer even the nomen of just an actor. Even the generalization of that is better than the talent because the talent well, implies I, the other people are not talented. And I hate that. Well, well and it, it's like you got a name. Yeah, exactly. Where, where's yeah. John? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even Mr. Roca is fine. Yeah, just get me on set. Well, it's the same thing with now in the last decade, decade plus, I guess, is people calling, uh, think people that do my job, the creatives. Yeah. We'll get a creative. Yeah. It's like, no, get a writer. Don't get a creative. I don't know what a creative is. It's, it's like you're a different species yeah. is the way they talk about you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, and I'm sure that you have many times showed up on a set where you got nothing from the director. Oh, yeah. And you just had to make it happen. Yeah, that's the worst. Because then, you know, if you're an insecure actor, that's the worst situation. Because you're just like, am I giving you what you want? You know? And that's why Woody's way of directing is interesting, the Woody Allen thing. Because all every actor says, he just says, uh, do it louder. Uh, do it with more emphasis. Uh, do it faster. And it's like... One thing we can say about Woody... First of all, he's a, whatever else we're going to say about him, he's a brilliant writer. Yes, can't deny And he that. casts great yes, he actors. Does. Yes, he does. So, and he know. rarely miscasts. He rarely miscasts. And if yeah. he does, he fires him. Yes, he does. He has no qualms about it. Yeah. Very, very true. Okay, uh, huge right. digression. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're still in the saloon with Peyton <laughs> and Stella. And now they're talking. Peyton says, you need any help with the, ga the gambling? And she says, no, I got this guy, Kelly, who we cut to this guy who is a schlub. Yeah, wearing another red shirt. And she says, apart from being, <laughs> right? She says, apart from being a loudmouth cheat, he's just the man I would have picked. <laughs> Why'd you go into business with him? I don't own this place. The man who does stuck me with Kelly. Who's the owner? And again, in perfect filmmaking, in walks Cobb. <laughs> well, look at this. Two of my favorite people in the world talking to each other. <laughs> and there's looks. And what I like, too, is that, is that she who immediately liked this guy yeah, yeah. is now going, what kind of person is this? Right, right. You know, you're a friend of Cobb. I was, uh, was hoping maybe you'd change your mind about the job. You didn't tell me you owned a saloon. And then Cobb says, Oh, that ain't the half of it, friend. <clears throat> Welcome to heaven. And he pulls back his jacket lapel, and there is the sheriff badge. Yep, yep. One thing I'll say. So you just watched this movie. Go back and watch this scene, and particularly after Cobb's entrance, and just watch Linda Hunt. Oh, yeah. Great point. Watch her face acting as all of yep. this is happening. Yes, great point. So much stuff going on. Yeah, agreed. Um, we're back with Mal and his dad. Mal's asleep. Dad goes out to get some water or something. He puts down that Henry rifle. Yeah. And then we hear a gun cock. This yeah. is going to happen a, twice in this film. 
and we cut to Mal, who's asleep, and a gunshot. I like that it happens off camera, to be honest with you. But it's funny, though, because when they're shooting him, I think it's nighttime. But by the time he rides over there, it's the day. I think they didn't. I think they were trying to do some day for night that didn't quite work. That's what I think. I I think because I agree with you. The timing in terms of the light doesn't seem to work exactly perfectly. Yeah, uh, we're back at the saloon and Emmett is talking to Peyton and this is where they goes, hey, they're talking about Roseanne Arquette. He's like, okay, you know what? She's a hard woman. If you want to take your shot, go ahead. <laughs> and this fits into this love triangle that we really never develop. And in comes Cobb. Uh, you're the one to kill old Murdo McKendrick. I didn't have much choice. He's about to shoot my brother in the back. There's a lot of people that kill a lot of people <laughs> in self-defense. <laughs> When people were about to kill others, shoot other people in the back. That's what I told him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing to watch in this film is watch Brian Dennehy's smile. Yeah. The more smiley he gets, the more dangerous he seems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he's always smiling in this film. Mm -hmm. He's having a ball. Yep. He's just kind of doing his own thing and enjoying what's happening around him because he's in the catbird seat. Exactly. He doesn't have to get involved if he doesn't want to. Yeah. You know the whole thing about uh, you don't want to get everything you'd ever wanted because you won't really be happy. You'll just want other stuff. Yeah. That is not Cobb. Nope. Cobb is super happy. Cobb, he's thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> he's having a great yes, time he is. That he being is. the sheriff. <laughs> and so he fires Kelly. And he says, I'm going to give your job to Peyton. And he says, well, maybe we should ask Stella. And Stella says, you'd be welcome. And in this moment, she looks up at the Batwing doors outside the saloon and yells to warn Kelly. No, Kelly, he'll kill you. And Cobb draws and kills him. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Stella, thanks for warning me. Which is almost, once again, one of those like backhanded compliments in a way you know thanks for warning oh, yeah. me because and then linda hunt ta- has a like an essence take on that death a little bit so yeah a hundred percent more of his evilness in trying to save his life she got him killed yeah exactly i mean he's gonna know. i think he was gonna die anyway and he says <clears throat> didn't have much choice which is literally exactly what emmett said just a couple of lines before oh yeah didn't have much of a choice was about to shoot my brother in the back right it's a good point yeah and I find it really interesting because it's a very thin moral distinction between Emmett and Cobb in this moment. Right. Because Cobb liked it. Yes. He was he was thrilled that Kelly was taking a shot at him. And we're outside and who's arriving for Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> Splendid in his furs. Isn't it a great intro? Like just coming in. And this is classic Goldblum. He's so good at these kinds of things. It just slides in and he's like, hey, Sheriff, where can a guy uh, start an honest game in this town? I'm a gambler. I want to start an honest game. Who do I talk to? I hope it's not this guy. <laughs> just just brilliant deadpan delivery, man. And he kind of says, no, no, it's to go talk to Peyton and we got to clean up this mess. And then Emmett turns to Peyton and says, you used to ride with that guy. One of the other things that's done really well is just enough distrust of Peyton. Right. And also, but also uh, the relationship between Peyton and Cobb. They don't go into like the old times. They don't talk about the old times. They don't talk about riding together a lot. None of that. There was just a past between them in some way, shape, or form. Certainly, he rode with that gang for a little bit, but clearly, he was not part of that gang in in, in the uh, emotional evil way. Uh, or if he was, he was a young man, went to prison, realized the error of his ways, and came out completely different. You know. 
I think it's a real interesting one to speculate on. Mm. Yeah, I really don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he killed people. Yes, I agree. I think he did. And he feels terrible about it. But he might have been more. So we've already seen Emmett commit crimes. Right, right, right. right. And I think he was more like Emmett in that he was in certain situations, Mm -hmm. you know, that led him to make certain choices. Or, and this is funny, I'm thinking about this. I just watched, we we just watched uh, Barry. We just finished the two seasons of Barry all over again. We started, Mm -hmm. we just tore through it in three days. We were just in the mood once again. But look at this. This is a situation where a guy, if you've seen the the Stephen Root, who is older and a friend of Barry's father, grabs Barry just as he comes back from Iraq and Barry's a sniper and he kind of turns him into a hitman. He gets him young and twists him. And so this could have been the situation with Kevin Klein's character. Maybe Cobb saw what was happening with or discovered or found a Peyton and then manipulated Payton a little bit uh, and t- and turned him into a little bit of his, like, part of his gang. And then Payton, who comes of age, realizes, wait, what? this is terrible. You know, this happens with people all the time. They get into something in their 20s, and when they hit 30, they're like, oh, my God, this is not what I'm going to be a part of anymore, you know? So maybe he was part of that gang for a little bit while he's finding himself, and when he did find himself, he didn't want any part of that gang anymore. I think you're, not only do I think you're 100% right, but you just gave me a full epiphany, um, <laughs> okay. which is the... Where's the dog? Right. I've always just seen the story as he kind of just couldn't bear to see this dog get hurt mm. and had just because well, that's what we'd say about him is that yeah. you never know what Peyton's going to care about. He cares about that. Um, and I think that's true. But now that you from what you just said, I yeah. think that he had been doubting his life's course for a long time. Oh, yeah. And I think the where's the dog moment is he looked at Tyree, yeah. who shot the dog because the dog got tangled in his horse's hooves. So that's the story we're going to get to a little right, later. Right, right. And that made him look, that, that is what clarified mm-hmm. at this moment. It wasn't just that he cared about the dog. Right. Is that he went, I'm not one of these guys. Yeah. I have to not be here. Right. I don't want to become one of these guys. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that happens all the time. Everybody has that. Somebody has their moment where they, that line is crossing. Like, I don't want to be that. This goes to, was Chicago wonderful? No. Right. Is that the no allows us, the audience, to construct things in our mind. Yep. If, if he had told what wasn't wonderful, then we would just know. But we wouldn't right. be thinking. Right. Is where's the dog? How did, what was his relationship with Cobb and Tyree and why did he leave and all this stuff? That's what makes him a fascinating character. Yep. It's the not knowing. It's the leaving blanks for us to fill in. But it's also that, again, to your earlier point, between the screenwriter and the actor, they're making, it all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Mal knows what he's saying when he says no. Yeah. If he didn't, it wouldn't work for us. Right. We wouldn't sense it correctly. Yeah. Mal's found his sister, Ray. She is not pleased to see him. What are you doing here? I thought you were done with our family. Daddy's dead. And her reaction when he says, Daddy's dead, he's murdered, is not weeping. Right. Who did it? I'm not sure, but I got an idea. And when I'm sure, they're going to pay. And she's like, no, you missed your window. Yeah. Where were you? Mom was dying. Where were you when dad got run off the land? It's too late. And she's kind of going, look. All you're going to do is get yourself killed and maybe get me in trouble, too. Right, right. Who is this actress again? Do you remember? I don't have her name in front of me. Because I remember she became famous doing the Josephine Baker story on HBO in the 80s. And I cannot remember. I should have looked her up. That's my bad. 
I'll do that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Go ahead. Just for my um, own sake. The ne- well, you looked that up. Of course, the okay. next thing that happens is coming down the stairs behind her <laughs> yeah. is Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, it is. What is that storytelling telling you? She's a prostitute. Yeah. He's immediately gravitated to her. And the fact that she comes out giggling and laughing is almost worse because it seems like she's so indifferent to her life beforehand. Lynn Whitfield. That's her name. Lynn, Lynn Whitfield. Whitfield. She's so indifferent to her life beforehand that she's just able to just giggle around about it and whatever. So, yeah. 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 Well, and the moment, you know, and again, it's we, I, it's handled very delicately. Yeah. Is Mal taking in the fact of, first of all, seeing his sister. Yeah. After a long time, having to tell her that dad is dead and murdered. Right. And then in that same moment, having the realization that his sister's a prostitute who yeah. slept with this Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. That's a lot. That is a lot to take in. And they don't put a heavy thing on it. Um, and I love Jeff Goldblum's like, just goes to shake his hand. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> introduce me to your friend. I was like, hey, pal, you just, you just blew into town like 10 seconds ago. Who are you well, to kind of be talking to us? And it's, you know, like you just slept with this woman's, yeah. you know, this is bro- her brother. Yeah. What are you doing here, Ray? This ain't for you. That's none of your business. Ray, all we got is each other. I don't have any family anymore. <sighs> Strong statement, man. Well, and the other thing that's great about this film is that each character has to res- resolve a certain thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. is that we've got Peyton and Cobb. We've got. Emmett with the son of the guy who he murdered. Yeah. We we were going to set up Jake and Tyree. That's going to be another one. And now we have really Mal and his sister. And the person between him and his sister is yeah. Jeff Goldblum. Yep. You know, so again, it's, it's, it's a really, really tightly constructed film. Yep. Agreed. Hey, where to square dance? <laughs> with our folks from the wagon train and Jake is there and dancing and now Emmett is with Rosanna Arquette and there's a weird scene about him coming to say goodbye which doesn't make any sense it makes really no sense at all because they've had no relationship no and she's making it awkward for him and just as they're kind of and, and there's even this moment where he says you don't make it easy on a fella yeah which is such a there's something happened here yeah we don't know what any of it was and then Suddenly, there's some riders coming up, and these are McKendrick's men, and they're all in masks, and they open fire and destroying stuff. They're not shooting the people. And what I think is really interesting is Jake comes out, and he's got his guns drawn. Mm -hmm. He does not shoot at them. Not yet. Right. Because our guys show restraint. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? Even Jake, who is probably the the least controlled of our four heroes. Yeah. Still, and I and I don't remember if he gives a look to Emmett, but I bet he does. Of like, am I supposed to shoot them or am I not supposed to shoot them? Right, right. Um, and then they sh- throw like a flaming torch at one of the wagons, and a guy comes out and shoots it out of the sky with a rifle, and he gets killed. And that's when Emmett opens fire, right. and then Jake opens fire. Right. And Jake even kind of jumps on his horse and rides out after them. And then we have our main character. This is a line you should just never have in a movie. I've been saying how Lawrence Kasdan is a great writer, but <laughs> we won't quit, you bastards. <laughs> I re- recommend to all you screenwriters out there, anything that ends with you bastards yeah. is 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 a line that you should take out of your movie. Unless you're doing uh, Johnny Dangerously when it's you bastards, then, then you should not have <laughs> it in your movie. But yes, you bastards is a really tough thing to make people believe nowadays. Um, we're back in the bar. Stella is watering down some whiskey <laughs> and uh, Kevin Klein's with her and asks, what's this bottle? And she goes, oh, that's the good stuff. 
and they are about to share a shot of the good stuff. Again, every time these two are on screen together, I love them. Oh, yeah. And then, like, one of the waiters or guys comes in and says, you better come outside. And they go outside, and there is Tyree facing off with Jake because yeah. Jake has been with the blonde girl that I guess Tyree is interested in. Yep. Um, that's Amanda Wiss from oh. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Oh, that's who that is. Yep, yep. And she's still working today. Uh, she yeah. still does these conventions and stuff and shows up. And uh, yeah, she's great. And Peyton kind of comes up behind and, and, and Tyree tells him to stay out of this. Yeah. And then Peyton reaches and quickly draws Tyree's gun out of his holster, right. which is very, very cool. Um, and tells Jake to go home. And what does Jake say? All I did was kiss the girl. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Peyton's like, that's what you said last time. We saw how that turned out. <laughs> and, but 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 Jake, and this is a rare moment of menace from Jake when Jake says, what's the matter, Peyton? You think I can't hit those two behind me? And you're just like, oh, so you son of a bitch. You know what you're doing. You know you're causing these problems and getting into these situations and causing these deaths with your actions. But because you're so good at what you do, you think you won't get uh, in trouble, but you have a menace to you. So it was an interesting, like just window into that for just a second. And then it was closed. Well, Jake, unlike any of the other three guys, he likes a fight. Yes. He's yeah. Emmett's really good at it, but he's not looking for it. No. Jake on some level is looking for it. Do I think that he killed the guy uh, with the shotgun on purpose? That was not his intent. He didn't know that guy was going to come after with the shotgun. He probably did what he had to do. But he was perfectly happy to be in a gunfight. Well, that's what I mean. I think he agitates the situation yes. to cause the reaction and then plays innocent after the reactions get uh, heightened. And he tur- and then he turns around to these guys and goes, boom. That's what I'm t- that tells you, man. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he leaves, leaving Peyton with Tyree. And Tyree says, I should have killed you a long time ago. And Peyton flips the gun around in his hand, hands it to Tyree and says, Why not now? Right. Strong statement. Another little piece of storytelling, a little tiny plant. At that mm-hmm. moment, Jeff Goldblum reaches down, lifts up his pants leg, revealing, and puts his hands on the dagger that he's got in his boot. Nice plant. Nice plant. Now, um, but th- where did you think that he was going to defend? Do you think he was going to defend Peyton or do you think he was going to defend uh, Tyree? Which I, I was- think he's going to, I think he's going to protect himself. Oh, fair. fair. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he gives, care, couldn't care less about these two guys. That's a great point. <laughs> he's just protecting himself. Um, <laughs> What does Tyree do? Immediately takes the gun, puts it right up against under Peyton's chin. Yeah. Don't do it, Tyree. I just lost a partner. If you kill him, I'll never get anyone to work in here. And there's a long pause, and he drops the hammer, and he walks away. Everyone relaxes. Slick puts the, you know, his pants leg back down, <laughs> goes back to his game, and Stella looks at Peyton and says, You really are a gambler, aren't you? And he walks forward and says, Give me some of the good stuff. <laughs> Such a great line. So what's going on with Peyton in this moment? Why does he hand him the gun? I think because, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, my natural instinct is to think because he has such confidence in himself or he has a self-destructive streak, which a lot of people who are ashamed about the, about the thing they're good at have because They almost hate themselves for being good at something they instinctively do not like that they're good at. So it's almost a self-destructive impulse or a suicidal impulse to give the gun back to 
whatever his name is, Tyree. Um, and so in that moment, that's what he's doing. He's feeling himself a little bit. And he's also kind of like, well, screw it. You know, let's see what happens. And he's a gambler. Like she said, he's a gambler. That's the most, to me, that's the most important line. You really are a gambler, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. First of all, because Stella, as much as anybody, recognizes who Peyton is from the beginning. They just right. have an understanding. Yeah. And, I, and I also think there's a weird uh, macho dominant thing that by handing the gun to Tyree. Yes. Yes. You know, exposes belly, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Is going like, what are you going to do? Right. You know, right. and because he knows, <clears throat> I think, I think what he's gambling on is Tyree's fear of Cobb. Good point. Is that Cobb has hired him to be in this position. Right. And Tyree deep down knows that he's nothing without Cobb. Right. You know, and I think, but I also think Peyton doesn't know. Yeah. And that's why he wants the good stuff. Oh, yeah. That's why he just gambled. And so he deserves it. So as Peyton takes a drink of the good stuff, I think it's time that we end part one of our exploration of one of my favorite films, Silverado. Yeah. As always, you can reach us on our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles. Please subscribe to the show. It helps our numbers go up. It's really important, even if you don't listen to it, but you should listen to it. Mm -hmm. And you should subscribe to it on iTunes or YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, all the usual places. Uh, leave a review while you're on iTunes. Leave your comments on YouTube. If you haven't seen Silverado, first of all, you really need to watch this movie. And to do it, I think you should go to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Silverado along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Yeah. You can support the show just like Hans Eskelson did who got his pick to uh, be reviewed on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Yep. And if you want to reach me, you can do so at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And, of course, uh, uh, if you want to come over to the YouTube channel, man, we're doing so much. Thing. We just crossed 13,000 subscribers, so I'm very happy about that. Come, Keep coming aboard. It's uh, YouTube.com slash John Roca Says. Oh, and come find me on Twitch. I just jumped onto the Twitch platform as well. Uh, just find the Outlaw Look for the Outlaw Nation, and you'll find me there. Going to start doing some shows from there, some playing some music, and playing some video games, things that, things like that. So uh, come and find me there, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch as well. Um, and if you want to follow the show, you can do it on Cine underscore Files on Twitter, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. And I think that is it for this week. We'll be back next week with part two of Silverado on the cinephiles. <laughs>